Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Andrea Savage. Andrea is a comedic actress, writer, director, and producer. She's had major roles in films like Step Brothers, Sleeping with Other People, and Dinner for Schmucks, among others. But she's perhaps best known for creating, writing, and starring in the true TV series I'm Sorry, as well as for playing the role of President Laura Montez on Veep. As a seasoned professional, Andrea is no stranger to the fact that it's nearly impossible to succeed in entertainment. And in 2019, after creating and starring in two successful seasons of her very own show, Andrea was hit with a sudden and unexpected cancellation. In this Mental Health Toolkit episode, Andrea describes how she got through this pivotal career setback and how it has caused her to change the course of her career in some really interesting ways. My full conversation with Andrea Savage right after this quick break. Andrea Savage, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's awesome to have you here. You've been in comedy, entertainment, television, and movies for years. And you've played some iconic characters, <laughs> including a version of yourself on your show, I'm Sorry, and Laura Montez on Veep. But to take it back a little bit, when did you realize that comedy and the entertainment world were for you? Oddly, not until kind of late. Uh, I think compared to most of my friends who are in comedy who are like, you know what, when I was little, I loved comedy, I studied comedy, I came right into comedy. I did not find comedy until my early 20s. I had gone to Cornell, I was pre-law, decided to become an actor. And it was only after all of that, I took an acting class um, where I met actually Chris Parnell. And he was in something called The Groundlings in L.A. And he was just about to go to SNL. And uh, we met and he was like, you're really funny. You should check out The Groundlings. And I didn't know what it was. And I went and I checked it out. And Jennifer Coolidge was performing. That's how long ago this was. This was the 40s. And I was like, oh, my God, that's the funniest person I've ever seen in my life. I want to do that. And then I, I, I auditioned. I did The Groundlings. I did stand up. And that's when really leaned into comedy. So tell me what your early career looked like before comedy and then as you got into it. Again, like I said, I went uh, to college and I was very academic, a very academic background, but I always did theater through high school. I did musical theater and then I did theater in college and I came back home. I lived at home. I worked in a restaurant where I waited on like people from my very fancy high school and felt like, oh God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And I attacked acting as the way you would probably attack getting like a finance job. I sent out big mailers. I, you know, was like, I have to get a commercial agent. I just attacked it very <laughs> like, you know, sort of logically, which in a, practically, I really did. And I actually made some strides that way. I got my first commercial agent that way. But I also, I had no fear. And I had a freakish amount of 
unfounded confidence in sort of just going, you know what, I can do this. And I would take a cold reading casting director workshop of like 50 random people. And I'd be like, I'm going to get an audition from this. And I sent, you know, pictures and resumes to the backs of Backstage West in these old magazines. That was like the only way you could like get into like independent weird movies and like stuff like that and and USC student films. And I really like just attacked it hard. Um, And that's how I got my first couple jobs. What was your first job? My first job was a Hot Pockets commercial. There we go. I love um, it. Where I had to take a bite of a uncooked Hot Pocket because they don't look pretty when they're cooked of an uncooked Hot Pocket go, "Mm, I'm in love. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then it would cut and then I'd pu- and then I'd spit it out into a bucket. Um, and I got a couple other little things. And then I ended up on this kid's show called Sweet Valley High. I would assume it wasn't the Hot Pocket commercial that made you feel like <laughs> this was how you were going to make your living in your career. So what was the moment or the inflection point that made you feel like this actually could be what you spend the rest of your career on? I mean, I'll let you know when that point happens. Um, no, I think, um, not for a while. Cause honestly, I think that's what a lot of people and including me didn't understand is I kept thinking like, okay, now I've done the thing that's now going to all make everything easier. And now it's all going to start coming. And it was like, that just didn't exist, at least yeah. in my career. And I kept moving forward. And I just said, as long as I'm still moving forward and I'm still enjoying it, I will keep going. I think in the back of my head, I also was like, I'll probably stop and go back to business school at some point. But I just kept not. And even after I was on Sweet Valley High, which was a series regular, that show ended. And then I did a couple guest stars here and there, but not enough. And I had to go back to waitressing. I think it's such a valuable lesson in just like, even for people who have found kind of any level of success, it really is this brick by brick journey where even if you have momentum, it generally isn't this kind of, um, it maintains kind of a linear path where you have something that peaks and then you go back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. And as long as you maintain this excitement about it, you just keep grinding because you just know you have a a self-belief that it's going to work out in the end, but also you couldn't kind of really envision yourself doing anything other than what you're doing now, even if it sucks in, you know, moments. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it is a hard path. And then that's around when I found comedy. And I think once I was in the Groundlings and kind of found like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. A group of smart, funny people. And then when I did stand up and then I started, then I ended up on a show called Dog Bites Man, which was this weird cult sort of favorite. And it was Zach Galifianakis and Matt Walsh and 80 Miles and myself. And it was sort of like a Borat kind of a thing yep. and Comedy Central. And I w- became a writer, producer on that. And that's when I started like melding the two sides of my brain that I call the Cornell and the Carney, which like <laughs> to fight with each other constantly and tell each other that neither one of them is is the right way to go. And it was like the first time where kind of both of the sides of me merged up a little bit. And that's when sort of, to answer your question in a long way about, that's, I think, when I really was like, okay, I think this is what I will do forever now. And it's going to take on new forms. But just acting wasn't going to do it. And just 
being a lawyer wasn't going to do it. And so, you know, kind of merging those two sides of my brain. So let's talk about 2017. You created, you wrote, you produced, and you acted in your own show, I'm Sorry, where you play this version of yourself. From my understanding, a lot of it is based on stories from your life, even based on just your personality, maybe in some ways a caricature of it, but yes. not all that dissimilar. Can you talk about the the reason you created this show and kind of what you were seeing in the industry at the time that made you wanted to push forward with this? Yeah, I mean... Part of it is just pushing forward because you have no other choice. If you want to stay in the industry, you're just hustling. But I'd, you know, I'd had my daughter. I was at an age where I was 40 and the roles were starting to become all moms, basically. And the roles were just bad. And I was like, I'm a mom. I'm nothing like these sexless, boring, humorless you know, women who raise their husbands. I, I just was like, this isn't my life. I've got funny stories that I think would make funny episodes. And this was my seventh show that I had sold. So I had sold many shows that almost went. And then I was on a lot of pilots and a couple of them would go here and there. And I just was like, I want to show a different version of a woman at 40 who's still funny and who she was before she had a kid not that I, and I love being a mom and I was like either you see the moms who are like smoking and like I hate being a mom you know <laughs> and they're those like caricatures or it's the perfect mom you know and I was like no one I know is like either of those yeah and so I wanted to do my version of some other shows that I respected and kind of were on and tell the funny stories that I knew I had, because I was like, those would be really funny episodes. Andrea's show, I'm Sorry, is still available to watch today on HBO Max. If you've never seen it, it's a very funny, Curb Your Enthusiasm style show that portrays a character we really don't see a lot of in TV and movies. So the fact that Andrea was able to bring this to life was a triumph in itself. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we get into I'm Sorry's cancellation and how Andrea coped with the loss and navigated her next steps. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And we're back. Before the break, Andrea described how she started her career in entertainment and how she managed to bring her very own show to life, something that most people in the industry only dream of. I think, you know, the really challenging part of the business that you're in is, of course, nothing is guaranteed beyond the season that you have or the, the gig that you have. And I think, you know, you saw this firsthand with what I would call like the height of, I'm sorry, his popularity season three of the show was canceled. Talk about what that experience was like for you. 
Oh, um, it was uh, really, really, really dark and really sad. Just because it came out of nowhere and really it was the rug was just pulled out from under us and it was also in the context of a global pandemic. So we were in the middle of shooting. I'd already, you know, been writing this season for six months, you know, so it was all written. Um, the show was bigger than it had ever been. And we're in the middle of shooting. We get shut down. And then we're told, of course, we're coming back. Of course, we're coming back. And we put all of our crew on hold and we're sending emails and just going, we're for sure coming back. You know, we got you. Don't worry. You're going to have, you know, we're all going to be back. And then a series of mergers was happening behind the scenes, which I couldn't really talk about. It was AT&T had bought Turner and we'd already gone through one incarnation of that where everyone I had originally worked with had been fired at True TV. So we already had passed that. Now we're, we're in a different merger. HBO Max is launching and we can, we shoot the whole show on location. So that was not going to be back for a really long time. So we knew we were going to have to get sound stages and that was going to cost money. And then we just caught, caught in the HBO Max, Turner, what's happening. Those channels no longer really doing scripted programming. And we were moving to HBO Max behind the scenes. And then the heads of HBO Max all got fired. And then we kind of had nowhere to go back to because the old place wasn't ever going to be able to do linear programming again. And the new place had all new people and was in the middle of a pandemic where they were having to cut shows that were already on there. But it was, it felt like a child had died. And I know that sounds dramatic, but it really was a super painful. Like it was just shocking and really sad and we're all alone. I never got to see my cast and crew again. And I had to let them all, you know, let a hundred and something people know they didn't have jobs and you're alone and you're not even around your friends or anyone else. And it kind of, everyone was panicking. And so no one else could buy Like, it just was like, really well, shitty. how does this happen? You know? Yeah. It was just really shitty. And um, it was a really big growth in my life though, coming out two and a half years later. Um, it pushed me to now be doing things I didn't think I could do before because when I go to like a dark place, my instinct is to hustle. It's how I deal with my anxiety. And so I go into like turbo mode to just kind of scramble and keep my head above water. And I still wish it didn't happen, but I've learned a lot from it about fear and loss and resilience it seems like just um, it's rather intuitive to you to find a natural silver lining in pretty shitty experiences and use that as motivation to kind of just figure out what the hell happens next. I just want to say one thing about what you're saying about is I actually feel like I feel like too many people look for silver linings, like the rosy side. And I'm like, you know what? I I'm actually not looking at it as like the rosy side, to be honest. I'm just looking at like the reality side. Yeah. And I'm not sitting there going, oh, look at all the amazing gifts I've gotten from it. Or like, yeah. you know, or like aging so fun. Look at what I've learned from aging. Aging sucks. The pain sucked. But I did learn things from it. But I, I hate, I don't know. I feel like we're yeah. all focused a little bit too much on like being happy. And I'm like, guys, totally. humans aren't supposed to be happy all the time. Totally. So I guess I say like, it's, it's, there's lessons, but I wouldn't, 
I kind of avoid like the silver lining, like, haha, like, look at how fun it's all been. Yeah, it's it's not like a silver lining where you just uh, kind of live in this idealistic world and ignore yeah. kind of the, the, the shit that's happening. It's more going back to just like your practical side. It's just like, yes. <laughs> it's like, what, what are your, what the are your options? practical side kicks in. Practical side is what kicks in in those moments where I'm so grateful that I have that practical side. How do you find the words for giving the news to your crew and everyone who worked with you on, I'm sorry, when you were kind of equally, let's just say, coping with the loss of six months of love and labor and kind of a way longer history with these folks? I will say it was many years of having to have many hard conversations when you're leading a show and you're the boss of that many people for that many years. You have to have a lot of really hard conversations with people from network executives to a PA to anybody. And I really was like, they're all equal in my head the way that, and I just was like, I always approach it directly and I don't hide from any of it. And I just look at the fear head on. I hate people who avoid the hard conversations. I feel like inevitably it makes the conversation eventually be way worse. And so I really just poured my emotions out and just was honest and just pulled the bandaid off. I just, that's the way that I handle stuff is I just go, you just got to look yourself in the face and you just got to do it. You're, let's call it 20 some odd years into your career in the entertainment industry and... Mm -hmm you're now making this transition from comedy to drama. You have this highly anticipated upcoming drama series, Tulsa King, where you're acting opposite Sylvester Stallone. Couldn't be more different <laughs> from what you've done in the past. Just like, how, how did you get yourself into this? And how do you think about this change in your career? Oh my God. I honestly, I had moments, we were shooting in Oklahoma. I had moments where I was like in Oklahoma looking <laughs> at Sylvester Stallone, doing like a dramatic scene about my, you know, alcoholism or whatever in the thing. And I'm like, how did I get here? Um, I wanted to do something completely different. I really am someone that's like, you got to kind of scare yourself. And that's when you know you're, you're still learning and developing. I have a fear of being stagnant and redoing the same stuff over and over. And I wanted to do a drama and it's really hard for people to consider you for a drama from comedy. And I got this opportunity and it was, you know, Taylor Sheridan, Sylvester Sloan, Terrence Winter. It was this great, you know, pedigree of people, but I really, you know, didn't know much about it. And it was wild and it was great. And I'm excited to see how the show turns out. And I really enjoyed it and I was equally excited and terrified. And that's when I know that I'm like in the sweet spot. What were the, uh, the one or two like biggest challenges you found in making this transition? The terror of me not being good at it definitely made me harder because comedy sometimes a lot of them, like you're like, I can just show up and I'm going to kind of know how to make this good. You know, there's a lot of improv, you know, and after a while you're like, oh, I've done that a thousand times. I can wing it a little bit. This, I was like, oh God, am I going to be found out that I shouldn't be doing this? So, you know, I guess the imposter syndrome, like it was that fear of like, I, you get one chance to show that you can act. Otherwise they go, yep, yeah, that's why she should have stuck to comedy. <laughs> um, so it was fear um, and preparation, you know, 
really thinking through, you know, some stuff that on comedies, you don't have to do that much work about backstory and, you know, a lot of stuff. I mean, not to like give all the secrets about comedy, but sometimes (laughs) some of that stuff isn't really addressed. First of all, you're probably not giving enough credit to uh, yourself and to comedians, but I for sure understand there's a lot of prep that goes into the type of role that you had to take on with this show. I want to finish things up with something we do at the end of a lot of episodes, and it's called the Mental Health Toolkit. Basically, I would love to hear from you for listeners when you're having a shitty day. So you think about you know, the day after you found out that the show was going to be canceled or you have to get, had to give folks news about what had happened. Mm-hmm. What are a few things you do to kind of get out of your own way or get out of your head? One thing I tend to, mornings are my hardest time. Some people have problem going to sleep. I, I wake up early and then that's when my sort of like panic and stuff sets in. Um, I am a big fan of, I wouldn't call it journaling, but it's sort of the like vomit, like I just get up and I just usually type it out, just every crazy fear and every crazy thought that's going through my head. And I literally just vomit it all out into a paper or into the computer or whatever. That tends to really like get it all out of my head. And that will sort of set me up. I need to be around people. I find that I need to make sure that I'm not just going to be alone all day like stewing in my thoughts. So I will set up a coffee. I will reach out to people like a real weirdo to friends be like, hi, who's around? What's going on? I need to see, you know, I'll reach out to my friends. And I find that once I can start chit-chatting, I find I'm able to make jokes, even about things that are really dark and sad. Trying to use humor to sort of get around it is the other thing is That would be my third thing, is trying to do bits about it with some friends, take it to really dark but comedic place, um, and try to get some laughs out of it, just to kind of get that going. And the other thing I do is I do try to go to that, like, okay, what's the worst fear right now? And say all of that comes true. Are you alive at the end of it? (laughs) Like truly look that worst thing, worst possible fear and just go, uh, granted that's horrible, but you've picked yourself up before. And I do think that is the one thing about aging that I will say is kind of okay. It is that learning of like, I have been sobbing, broken, broken, broken. And here I am again, laughing, having a good life. And after going through a couple of those, you go, okay, the pain actually does get you somewhere in the end. So let it happen. Stop trying to stop it. Just go through it. And there you go. I love it. Andrea Savage, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thanks for having me. I love Andrea's approach to handling a career disappointment. You don't have to make the best of it and you don't have to find the silver lining. Rather, remember that you've survived far worse before and that sometimes the best way for coping is to continue pushing forward. And maybe, like Andrea, you can even take the opportunity to try something entirely new. Now, Imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on Imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked, where you want the show to get better. 
Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Vallabhaneni and Makila Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. <laughs>